0: Okay, thanks very much for coming out tonight. Uh, As it warms up, it's really nice to see people come out for tonight's uh, very interesting talk. Welcome to the Princeton Public Lectures Series. Uh, Tonight, of all nights, please take your cell phones and pagers and set them to a setting that makes me unaware that you own this device. It would be really wonderful. Thank you very much. My name is Sam Wong, and I am Chair of the Committee on Public Lectures here at Princeton University, and I'm also an Associate Professor of Molecular Biology and Neuroscience. It's a pleasure to welcome you all out tonight to this talk, uh, as well as viewers of local cable and uh, C-SPAN as well. And there are special conditions tonight's talk, and I hope that you will um, help us out with that, especially during the question period. And this will become clear in the question period the ways in which we need your help. Um, in the semester ahead, we have some excellent speakers coming up, and I'm pleased to call to your attention uh, other speakers this semester, which include John Waters, Eric Lander, Matt Taibbi, Gillian Tett, Anna Devere Smith, and Percy Diaconis, and these are all available for you to browse and learn about if you haven't heard of some of these people at lectures.princeton.edu. So I urge you to go look at that, and, uh, and we archive many of these lectures at that site. Now tonight's lecture is a Stafford Lytle Lecture on Public Affairs. This was founded in 1899 with a gift by Henry Stafford Lytle of the class of 1844. He was active in New Jersey politics and was the first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. Uh, Princeton is said to have taken the place of the wife, home, and children he never had. And by his suggestion, these lectures were first given by Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, uh, every year until his death in 1908. And after that, there was some diversification, and other speakers were invited in addition to Grover Cleveland. And and to give you an idea of the kinds of people who have come in the hundred years since then, uh, speakers have included Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Henry Stimson, Arnold Schoenberg, uh, Thurgood Marshall, Gunnar Myrdal, and in recent years James Fallows and Josh Marshall. So we've had some very interesting speakers in the last hundred years. Um, (laughs) I was pleased tonight to meet Andrew Sullivan for the first time, who has linked to my polling analysis website, the Princeton Election Consortium. Getting a link from Andrew is an honor shared by only a few thousand (laughs) others in the last year. Um, Dr. Selvin will be introduced by Stephen Macedo, Lawrence Rockefeller professor of politics, and former director of the University Center for Human Values.
1: It's a little-known fact that Grover Cleveland insisted that calm blue waters be written repeatedly on the board during these lectures. Uh, Otherwise, he just couldn't speak in public. uh, Andrew was, uh, was born in England and educated at Oxford, earned a first in modern history and modern languages and was president of the Oxford Union. He went on to Harvard, where he earned a master's degree in, of all things, public administration, uh, while also interning at the Daily Telegraph and the Thatcherite think tank, the Center for Policy Studies. He was best known during those years as an actor, appearing as Hamlet in plays at Harvard, Allen in Peter Schaeffer's Equus, and also as Mozart in Amadeus. Beginning in the mid-1980s, he wrote for various publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Daily Telegraph, Esquire, and most notably the New Republic. His first article for that magazine was on the cult of bodybuilding. He returned to Harvard to pursue a PhD in political philosophy, having written on bodybuilding. Uh, his, His dissertation was entitled, Intimations Pursued, the Voice of Practice in the Conversation of Michael Oakeshott." was a prize-winning dissertation at Harvard in political philosophy. And I remember it well because as a junior faculty member at Harvard, it was my honor and privilege to be a a member of his dissertation committee. Uh, Andrew became uh, acting editor of the New Republic in 1991 at the ripe old age of 27, and later that year became editor, a position he held for five notable and tumultuous years. He resigned in May 1996. And for those of you who follow the blogs, you know that the tumult has continued over these years. Uh, The magazine flourished under Andrew's leadership, earning multiple national awards. And the reach of the magazine greatly expanded in ways that were controversial but also uh, very salutary. Topics included hip hop, same sex marriage, uh, and and many other uh, cultural issues. Under Sullivan, the magazine campaigned for early intervention in Bosnia, for homosexual equality, and against affirmative action. And in 1996, he was named Editor of the Year by Adweek magazine. From the early 1990s, Andrew was famous for being openly gay, Catholic, and conservative, at least in some important respects. Uh, As a writer and an editor, he helped pioneer issues such as gays in the military, same-sex marriage, the AIDS crisis, and the role of nature in shaping masculinity, among many, many other issues. His 1993 New Republic essay, The Politics of Homosexuality, also the title for tonight's talk, was called the most influential article of the decade on gay rights. So said the nation. Right for once. Uh, I'm only kidding. His 1995 book, Virtually Normal, An argument about homosexuality became one of the best selling books on gay rights, translated into five languages. His reader, Same Sex Marriage Pro and Con, is terrific, still very much in use, including in my undergraduate class. And I'm only up to the mid 1990s. If I continued to this vein uh, up to the present, uh, there would be no time uh, for Andrew's talk. So suffice it to say that Andrew's essays and books on sex and gender, love and friendship, conservatism, Catholicism, war, torture, and many other issues have done as much as anyone's writings to both illumine and shape the culture and politics of our time. Since 2002 Andrew's been a columnist for Time magazine, a regular guest on serious TV and radio shows and also on comedy shows like Real Time with Bill Maher and the Chris Matthews Matthews show. (laughs) Uh, He remains a senior editor at the New Republic and his book The Conservative Soul was published by HarperCollins in 2006. Uh, Andrew was one of the first mainstream journalists to blog, and uh, he immediately attracted a large audience in doing so. AndrewSullivan.com's Daily Dish moved to the Atlantic Monthly uh, online in 2007, where he now writes daily. Actually, he now writes hourly, it seems. Uh, He has spoken to university audiences and TV and radio audiences all over the world, but tonight he's all ours. So to speak on the politics of homosexuality, please join me in welcoming Andrew Sullivan.
2: Thank you very much. Um, Just for a small correction, I am no longer a senior editor at The New Republic, and presumably if I still were, I wouldn't have been after last week. But uh, I am actually a senior editor of The Atlantic, monthly, and a writer at TheAtlantic.com. I've been asked to speak about the politics of homosexuality, which is, as Steve pointed out in his very kind and generous introduction the subject of an article I wrote in 1993 and was summarized really in my book, Virtually Normal. It's now 2010. And it was interesting, having been asked to speak about this, to go over the arguments that I made then and see how they've held up and whether they still apply and whether I still believe all of them. And what I tried to do in that essay was to actually, instead of getting into this extraordinary fight in which one side calls the other perverts and the other side calls the other bigots, to actually try and deconstruct it a little. To talk about various ways of understanding and thinking about homosexuality and I divided and there are many, many different ways of doing so, but I decided, for the sake of clarity and brevity, to divide it into four categories, four different kinds of politics about homosexuality, and tackled why I believe every single one of them was wrong. Those politics of homosexuality I called prohibitionism, liberationism, conservatism and liberalism and the arguments I made in the late 80s and early 90s came from a young gay man trying to make sense of his own life and the world he was living in and try to make sense logical rational sense of the discourse around this extraordinarily fraught topic it remains of course incredibly fraught today intense emotional disturbing, upsetting The sort of red-hot center of a culture war in which many people's lives are discussed and debated I want to try and tonight diffuse that to calm that and to try and think rather than feel about this topic and I ask you tonight also to help me do that because there is so much emotion legitimately about this subject, that thinking is sometimes hard. The first concept of politics of homosexuality, prohibitionism, has actually had a much stronger and longer life than I expected it would back in the early 1990s. Prohibitionism was, of course, the absolute consensus in America and indeed most of the world for the vast majority of the existence of humankind. It is still the overwhelming politics for the overwhelming number of homosexual men and lesbian women and bisexual and transgendered people in the world. Today we see in Africa a rather terrifying movement to criminalize, imprison, and execute homosexuals, fermented in the United States, created by the American religious right. In my lifetime, when I grew up, when I was born in my own country, homosexuality was illegal. It was criminal. People were jailed. People lived in fear. Today, they still live in fear not really in many parts of this country but certainly in large parts of the Middle East in vast amounts of Africa and Asia where people today even uh, in places we think of as relatively civilized suffer tremendous suffering because of this in Iran young gay men are hanged in public because they are homosexual and this is based on religious doctrine, first of all. It's based in this country on the Bible, and I think it is silly to deny the fact that the Bible does explicitly condemn homosexual sex. I'm not one of these people trying to pretend it doesn't. Leviticus is very clear on this matter. Romans seems to be pretty clear that it's not kosher. I hope that isn't going to be interpreted as anti-Semitic. Um, <laughs> Does this work today as a politics? Does biblical literalism, the, the appeal to the Bible, which in fact is one of the dominant themes of the religious right, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you've heard these slogans, the Bible is clear, this is the word of God. We must take the Bible literally seriously. Well, my response to that is simply this. Leviticus is clear. A man shall not not lie down with a man as he does with a woman. But it is also clear that the penalty is execution. It is also clear that you shall not mix one fabric with another fabric, in which case the religious right should be campaigning to shut down Bloomingdale's. It should, if biblical literalism is the actual argument, be arguing for the execution of homosexuals as real fundamentalist regimes do. So I'm sorry, but already the prohibitionists are engaging in incoherence. Either the Bible is literally true and is the commitment to be enforced, or it isn't. They're telling us it isn't, because they don't support the execution of homosexuals. Then you come to a much more sophisticated argument. And this argument comes from the Catholic tradition of natural law. What it says is that human beings are naturally designed by God to be heterosexual. In fact, at some level, homosexuals do not really exist. They are all, we are all heterosexuals. But some choose to engage in behavior that is unnatural, that is against the way God made us and the way nature designed us. And this revolt against nature is the argument against homosexuality. The legal framework for criminalizing homosexuality was often referred to in English law, and indeed in early American law, as crimes against nature. This is a core element. And why is this a core element? Because when you ask them, it is that sexuality and sexual acts are by nature supposed to procreate and create life. And a man and a woman can do this, but obviously a man and a man for biological reasons and a woman and a woman for biological reasons cannot create new life. and that therefore the act, the entire purpose of sexuality, is being perverted, literally, away from its natural end. Therefore, we are not, it is claimed, bigoted about homosexuals or stigmatizing homosexuals. We are simply saying that by understanding the nature of human beings, the act of sexuality in this sense, Is clearly contrary to what every human being would clearly understand. And this is the other critical argument of natural law. Natural law does not appeal the way that Protestant fundamentalism does to the Bible in a literal sense. It says and makes an argument that these arguments that it's making are obvious and self-evident to anybody with reason. That you do not need to have revelation or even faith to accept the obvious, reasonable nature of this condition and of this argument. And you know, it remains a very powerful argument. The male body produces sperm that we know biologically are and can be and can become, if united in an ovum, into a potential human being. Without this particular thing, nobody in this room would be here. I certainly wouldn't, and I know all of you wouldn't either. I'm now degenerating into the same kind of uh, repetitive mantra as Bart Simpson's uh, alter ego. So one also would expect that this argument to be held consistently. What I'm trying to do here is think reasonably about this. Well, Protestants who invoke this also defend contraception. In other words, and in fact they are uh, they, uh, very strongly committed to, pro- uh, to contraception in many circumstances. Now to use contraception as a heterosexual is to engage in this natural act and deliberately prevent it from reaching its natural end. So presumably, in that sense, heterosexuals that use contraception are perverting the entire point of sexual interaction. The Protestant argument is, well, yes, but it's also about committing in love to one another. Sex is an act of love in a committed relationship? Well, unfortunately, that argument can also apply, obviously, to gays and lesbian couples. So, bye bye that argument. The Catholics, of course, being sometimes very smart, and in 1968, realizing, "Uh uh-oh, if we give this away, a lot of other things will follow, insisted that, no. The contraception is as bad as homosexual sex for exactly the same reason. And again, it's important to point out the Catholic doctrine in this is not bigoted. It is not in that insofar we've gone. It is not saying that homosexual people are evil or wrong. It is saying that the sex act must always be open to procreation. It's the same argument as against masturbation, and as against contraception. It's just that homosexuals get caught in this same argument because by nature, sadly, they cannot reproduce themselves. So the question then becomes, um, is it okay, therefore, for infertile couples? People who know that they cannot procreate at all to have sex to engage in a sexual act that is inherently incapable for no fault of their own of producing children right here you have a sexual act that they know in advance cannot create children one would imagine that if sex is only feasible during that, if, if it is creating new life then clearly people who are infertile for one reason or another or people who are post-menopausal cannot have sex so one expects the Catholic Church to say no, you must not have sex past menopause and you must not have sex if you are infertile because you are perverting the core nature and reason of sexuality but they don't, do they? They actually provide the sacrament of marriage to infertile couples. There is no bar on the sacrament of marriage for people who are past menopause. It is also simply a fact that during the period when a woman is pregnant, it is impossible to procreate in the sexual act, and yet the Church does not bar sexual acts. In that nine months, which one might imagine if one is arguing from natural law, from nature, there is nothing more natural than the nine months of pregnancy in which a woman is not open to conceive again. But no, this position says that's fine. This position also says that in terms of family planning, if you time it right, the rhythm method, as it was once called, natural family planning. If you, if you can time it right so you're at the moment when she can't conceive, then, then, uh, then that's okay. Well, if that isn't also trying to rig the system against nature in order to prevent procreation, I don't know what is. This argument is riddled with exceptions the argument that is used within natural law to say that gay people cannot have sex is violated in the case of many other examples, whether it be the rhythm method, whether it be the infertile couples, or whether it be postmenopausal couples. At which point some say, well, you know, even with infertile couples, as in the, as in the Gospels, a miracle can happen. You can still have sex, and a a miracle can happen, and somehow God can intervene. Well, if a miracle can happen, then um, maybe I can have a baby with my husband. (laughs) Who am I to put a limit on the power of God? (laughs) You laugh, because the argument is, of course, ridiculous. And once you go through this argument, as a young Catholic boy trying to understand why my church was telling me I could never have love for a relationship. Uh, I had to go through these arguments, one by one by one. And I found that every single one fell apart until it came to gay people. They somehow were uniquely set apart because they somehow were not worthy of all the exceptions that were made for other people, for compassionate and human and convenient reasons. To answer this argument, because as a young Catholic boy, I kept asking unfortunate questions because it is a church I still love and a faith I still hold. There came this argument, which is that in fact what really matters is that the whole universe by nature is divided into the symbolic two halves of male and female, that this is a mystery about humankind that God has chosen. It is represented by Jesus and the bride of the church. It is represented in the heavens. It is why the mother of God is given such great precedent uh, prominence within the Catholic tradition along with Jesus. There is some great symbolic notion that the whole universe is made whole by this complementarity of the sexes, and that anything that violates that complementarity somehow misses. So that contraceptive or infertile sex, I mean, rather infertile sex between couples who cannot procreate because they model the form of the male and the female. Are allowed, but because a man and a man or a woman and a woman do not represent this natural form of the universe, it is some violation. Now some of you have puzzled looks on your faces and I don't blame you. Jesus, one recalls, never married. Jesus, one recalls, told all his disciples to leave their wives immediately without even saying goodbye. Jesus, one recalls, consorted with single women. The Church itself demands that its highest people in authority be male and unmarried. This fantastic importance of complementarity of male and female again suddenly collapses, except when it comes to the question of homosexual in which case it is resolutely and consistently enforced. It is also true, of course, that if one understands nature as nature, and this entire tradition springs from Thomas Aquinas' understanding of Aristotle, and Aquinas was trying to understand biology, he was trying to understand what actually is in nature, you would think that, as Aquinas did, the modern church would be seeking constantly and emphatically to discover what science is telling us about what nature really is. And science is telling us and has told us in the last 150 years that there are not actually in the whole universe just two genders. There are many species in which there are intermediate genders, the human species has many people born as intersex. There are dozens of genders of grass. There are fish species that go from male to female to male in their own lifetime. And everywhere in nature you see homosexual behavior as Darwin saw it himself and then covered it up, because he thought it was too outrageous to say, (laughs) happening all over the place, in all sorts of species. And now, of course, in science, in study of nature, there are all sorts of theories about why homosexual orientation might be of evolutionary advantage, might have helped bonding. It might have been advantageous for human beings to have a group of people who weren't dedicated solely to rearing children themselves, but could actually be helping the community as a whole educate, religious um, duties, scholarship, all sorts of other things that actually gave these communities evolutionary advantages because they had men and women who were not dedicated solely to reproducing and bringing up children as a family unit. Now, we're at a stage of knowledge where we don't really know the resolution of all of these things. But what we do know, we do know as truth, as the truth of nature, is that this idea of male and female is the only definition of what the universe is about, as somehow some ultimate truth of which all variations must be banished is simply not consonant with what we know about science and about nature. And if Aquinas were living today, he'd be studying evolutionary, biology, and psychology to understand what God meant us to be. I look at the world and the universe as a Catholic who believes in God as an amazing, varied, diverse, fascinating, complicated, beautiful place. And I believe that also applies to sexuality and to human gender. And I know what I do not know. I believe in what the great Catholic poet Gerard Manley Hopkins called pied beauty. The beauty of those who are freckled and different. The fact that the universe in fact requires diversity. The fact, of course, as we now know the diversity of individuals and of genes is a strength. It is the driving force of human life and human civilization. My view is, therefore, again, by reason, not by feeling, this argument is over. The last desperate act of the people supporting it has been the decision of the current Pope to insist that gay people are simply, as he put it, objectively disordered, unquote. He doesn't quite explain why or how. He has even gone so far as to say that even if gay men are utterly celibate, if they obey the Church's teachings entirely, if they never have sex with another man, they still cannot be priests. His directive recently in a last gasp of effort is simply to say that we don't care whether a gay man adheres to exactly the same rules as a straight man in the priesthood. He's still somehow sick. Too sick to serve God. In my view, that particular directive, which I think up until then there are some arguments that seem to fall apart, that itself is not an argument. It is an act of bigotry. It is an act of stigmatization. And this, by the way, and this perhaps is where feeling does creep in, by a church that has engaged over the last decades in the grotesque cover-up and commitment of sexual abuse of children at a greater extent than any other institution that we know of. If it were a secular institution, the police would have gone in and shut it down. But nonetheless... The hypocrisy and double standards of these individuals are not what I'm arguing here. What I'm arguing here is the argument makes no sense. And I tried most of my life for it to make sense, and it doesn't make sense. The second politics of homosexuality, think calm blue oceans, calm blue oceans, calm blue oceans. I want to just add, by the way, uh, before we leave the Catholic topic, the Catholics I know, the people who live in the church and the pews, and the priests I know, are not like this at all. They're good people. They do great things. They love God. And they love their gay and lesbian brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. I'm testimony to that. My devout mother loves me as she loves my brother and my sister. And there is no way in which her love or the love of my fellow Catholics and fellowship of my fellow Catholics has been affected by this. I'm talking here not about Catholics. I'm talking about a hierarchy that is lost. Lost, sadly lost. But one day will find itself again. The second politics of homosexuality I want to call liberationism. And now all of you liberals will hate me. It is basically an argument that, again, in a curious kind of way, because Foucault in some ways, you know, really what well, you can't understand Foucault without understanding Catholicism. All he wanted to do was turn it upside down. For Foucault, there's no truth. There's no fundamental nature of human beings. Homosexuality, like heterosexuality, is entirely a social construction. It is all in our heads. That to talk about homosexuals through history, for example, is to make a fundamental fallacy. There were no homosexuals before the late 19th century when the term homosexuality was invented people laugh. But Foucault made a great career out of this argument. And he's absolutely right in many respects that in different cultures and in different times and in different eras and places how homosexuality has been described, what it has meant, how homosexuals have understood themselves, the words they have the variety of ways in which it has been expressed has varied enormously. To such an extent to say, for example, that someone living in 8th century Byzantium thought of himself as a gay man is, in fact, I think, idiotic. No historian would, agree, would disagree with that. And Foucault's brilliance, and it is brilliance, was to understand exactly that and to try and free us from these constructs that he thought were actually imprisoning us. That so all that mattered in the end were feelings and desires. That heterosexuality and homosexuality dissolve into just a variety of acts. You can see also the Catholicism within Foucault. Just as Catholicism is all about the sexual act and understanding that. So Foucault wants to reduce everything to that as well, and then to claim that none of it has any sustaining or permanent meaning. So most of students in today's Ivy League will be told that if they're gay and lesbian, they're actually queer. That to be gay and lesbian is to be in permanent constructionist revolt against any sort of category whatsoever that it is a permanent revolt against structures that inhibit human freedom. And this is what we call queer liberationism, in which we study texts and and deconstruct them, in which we study words and deconstruct them, in which we look at our lives and deconstruct them. And the whole idea of gay rights is itself oppressive, And I think probably for Foucault it was. Although in his later years, before he died, there did seem to be some shift in his thinking, but I can't read into what he might have evolved into. So I want to agree with him that there is the obvious variety of expressions and understandings and self-understandings. But I don't think it goes all the way down. I think there is something also just there that we seem to understand and all I can say is that my own experience and maybe your experience and ask yourself this as deeply as you can. Most gay people have had to ask themselves this in a way that most straight people have never asked themselves this because they never had to question their heterosexuality. Although Freud, of course, was fascinating about why he thought that heterosexuality had to be explained just as much as homosexuality. I do think that in fact, no, these acts and feelings sexually and emotionally are not just acts and feelings. They are, as human beings in nature, acts and feelings that are related to other people and those people are members overall of two genders. And if you are of one gender attracted to another, another gender, it is not something you have constructed. This is a very elaborate way of something of saying that you really can't help what turns you on. You really can't help who you fall in love with. And it remains a simple truth, a fact of life, a, phenomenolo- there we go, a phenomenological fact that this is how people live and how they experience. When I wrote my book, Virtually Normal, I had to begin by saying, what is homosexuality? And I just simply had to say, this is how I experienced it. This is how everybody I've known experienced it. That it emerged from them deeply, just as heterosexuality emerged from people deeply. You don't think when you first fall in love, oh, I'm a heterosexual. Or, I'm a homosexual. You think, God, I'm so in love with David or Jane. That's the truth. You can't deconstruct that. And it's eternal, and it's been part of us forever. And for some reason, the biologists and geneticists are trying to figure out, and evolutionary biologists have all sorts of theories about. A very small minority of human beings have that experience with members of the same gender. There you have it. It's an experience that seems to be in every culture, at every time, in every place, and is not, therefore, socially constructed. A huge amount of the rest of it is, but when you get all the way down, there is some core, solid concrete beneath the earth that is reality. That is what we call our sexual orientation. There is also something rather bizarre to my mind about liberationism's incoherence politically, because queer liberationists are railing against gay oppression. But shouldn't they actually, if they were consistent, be seeking gay oppression? Isn't the experience of the outsider and the marginalized and the persecuted, which is essential to the version of the queer, threatened by equality and inclusion? If our role is to be the outsiders, why would we ever seek to belong? Why are queer queer liberationists part of any movement to change law or reform institutions to include gay people at all? And of course, in days gone by, before many of you seem to have been born, God, I feel so old these days. Um, That was precisely the argument. We don't want to have marriage. We We don't want equal marriage rights. We want to destroy marriage altogether. We don't want to join the military. We don't want straight people to join the military. We want to destroy the military altogether. So in the end, the irony of liberationists is that they actually seek to perpetuate the oppression of gay people. Except, of course, almost all of them in real life are too humane to actually go there. said they take it out on gay conservatives, but we'll leave that for another, another day. But do you see what I mean? There's something incoherent about this politically. You can't you can't worship being in a prison as the core of your identity, and then asked to have the key to get out. In the end, it becomes a prison you beautifully decorate. You make a charming home, and God knows we homosexuals are good at that. (laughs) The third politics of homosexuality. I feel like I'm from some Monty Python speech.
3: <laughs> four,
2: No, four. <laughs> Sorry. The third politics of homosexuality I call conservatism. And I mean this in a not in the way that conservatism is currently understood in this country. I mean a class of conservative temperament, which is, we really rather like homosexuals, but really rather you didn't talk about it very much. Thank you. This is a very English view. It's, um, why do you have to keep bringing it up? Um, Can't we all just get along? Uh, Why do you have to talk about sex all the time? Why do we even have to talk about this? Gays in the military... There was a time when we didn't have to deal with this subject. Can we please go back there? I don't want to hate you, but I don't want to acknowledge you exist. And these are also good people, many of them. But of course, in the last 20 years, the possibility of that happening is over. The closet has collapsed. Looking at Admiral Mullen, seeing the difference between then and now, Admiral Mullen in front of the Congress said he had always served alongside gays and lesbians in the military. As most soldiers, especially sailors will always tell you not to denigrate the Air Force or the Marines (laughs) heaven knows not the Marines but that now he understood that it was a lack it was a violation of the integrity of these soldiers that they have to lie about who they are because our society has evolved to the point where these people are not actually closeted themselves in their real lives. They just have to pretend to be someone else within the military. And this is an enormous and cruel imposition upon these people. And in fact, because the society has evolved to such an extent that these people's lives are very obvious, other people, sometimes for malicious reasons, out them and their careers are over. And this is not an honorable thing to happen and the honor of the United States military uh, and the integrity, which is the word that he used, of the American soldier will no longer allow this conservatism to remain. You will also notice that the closeted politician is becoming actually rarer or more ridiculous. Larry Craig is the only person Apart from his wife, who seems to think he is heterosexual in the entire United States of America. <laughs> we can pretend otherwise, but not many heterosexuals spend a lot of time in bathrooms with their feet 10 feet apart. You will also notice the disappearance of openly gay Republicans. There are none in the Congress of the United States. None. Why? Because the cost of a, a gay person today to be in the Republican Party, which is no longer a conservative party, it is a fundamentalist party, uh, is impossible to sustain. Log cabin Republicans, which once, 10 or 15 years ago, had a chance at making it, have all but given up. The right-wing fringe of the log cabin Republicans, a group called GeoProud, actually co-sponsored a booth at the Conservative Action Conference which is going on in D.C., which I'm so sorry I'm missing. Uh, And what's interesting about those gay Republicans is they're all openly gay. You know what's also interesting about them is they all support equal marriage rights, military service, openly gay military service, and they all oppose constitutional amendments to ban gay marriage. There are no gay people left in this country able to actually support the agenda of the Republican Party. Because the closet itself, the atmosphere that it created, has disappeared, it's gone, it's over. That's what's happening. In Britain, to give you a simple counterexample, the country I left 24 years ago, the Conservative Party, uh, if it wins the next election, which is happening in a, within a hundred days, if it wins the next election by one-seat majority, we'll have 15 openly gay conservative MPs. And two of them will be in the Cabinet. I had dinner two nights ago with the shadow minister for the environment who is not only openly gay, he is also married under Britain's civil partnership laws with every single right that every heterosexual has. And he has campaigning to win gay votes for conservative values. That is the coherent next step in an evolving society. But it means that the closet is over, and it means that the old conservatism is dead. And what's happened in this country is that those people have left what is increasingly a fundamentalist party that seeks not only that gay people stay in the closet, but actually embraces the idea that they should be cured. And he's actually fomenting campaigns that they be executed in Africa. I'm running out of time. Liberalism. Number four. (laughs)
4: Liberalism
2: understands homosexuals as a protected and victim class. They see the entire Homosexual question in terms of the classic civil rights Construct in which minorities need to be protected from majority hatred and majority oppression They need special protections from these things There must be laws that make it impossible for people to fire someone private people within the private sphere not the government Because they're gay We must have hate crimes laws so that people, the laws, someone kills somebody because they happened to be walking down the street and looked like they had a lot of money and someone who kills somebody because he yells faggot at them, that the person who yells faggot at them needs to have a higher penalty somehow under the law than the other act of violence. Because the minority group is so vulnerable to fear And the terror spread throughout the broader community is so great that our laws must make a special note that there are not Americans, but African Americans, Korean Americans, gay and lesbian Americans, and the job of the civil rights movement, every civil rights movement, is to make sure that this next group is included in that category. And then we're fine. And I think this comes from an extremely benevolent and good place. What I worry about is that it balkanizes society into different sections. It places, in fact, and generates by its very structures and language, racial, sexual, and sexual orientation divisions within people, and provokes resentment among those who don't seem to be protected and generates a very particular argument that, yes, some people are arguing for special rights. And I don't believe minorities should have any more rights than majorities. I think they should all have rights. Now, I don't, I don't believe the majorities, that minorities at some fundamental constitutional level should be allowed to be discriminated against by their government. Absolutely not. That's what courts are for. But I do believe that minorities can and should and must look hatred in the face, and be confident enough to stare it down without the necessity of law and government pretending they do not have that capacity. I believe that the doctrines and attitudes that liberalism fosters with these special groups and these special categories actually subtly entrench in the human psyche the sense that gay people are always victims, that they must always seek help and protection that it in some sense, even though it is done in an incredibly benevolent way, infantilizes them. I also believe, as someone who is a passionate believer in free speech, that we should never criminalize bigotry, just as we should never criminalize any kind of good speech. I believe the freedom of the bigot is also the freedom of the prophet. I think a government at any particular time will never be able to know forever which is which. And that all the government should do is make sure that both have the freedom to say and think anything they want. And the only limit should be, it should never be speech that is a threat of violence that actually explicitly targets any specific person. Because I believe, that's why I defended the right of the Boy Scouts, to discriminate against gay scoutmasters, even though I think the policy is abhorrent. Because I believe that once you accept the principle that a private group cannot discriminate against people, it decides for its own particular reasons, whatever reasons it is, then the groups that are most vulnerable from government interference are the ones that are the smallest. Gay people. Among them, that the right of the Nazis to walk, Nazi or KKK to walk down the street under the First Amendment is indistinguishable from the right of the drag queen to walk proudly down the street in the gay pride parade. I want to defend both of them, not because one of them is good and one of them is bad, but because both of them are acts of freedom. And if we start, as gay people, infringing upon the First Amendment, the fundamental right to say what we want, to be who we are, we will finally be the victims because there really aren't that many of us. And we will be the people who will be the victim of this kind of intimidation. Now, I also believe, for those reasons, that we should be extremely careful in enacting Equality for gay men and women that we protect the religious liberties of people who for whatever reason sincerely believe this is against their conscience. Even if, as I've tried to show, there isn't that much reason in this, it is not the role of the government to tell a religious person that they're not reasonable. At some level, every religious person is not reasonable. Religion is not about reason. And what I worry about And what I worry is a legitimate fear among people is that once you start down this path of protecting particular groups of people, other people and their freedoms to say and be and speak will be affected. And lastly, I also want to say that gay people are a very particular kind of minority, a a, a very strange, in some ways, minority. Different than every other racial minority or group that we think of. Because, which makes them not and shouldn't be put apart. Of all minorities, should not be balkanized or set apart. And the reason is that every homosexual was born into a heterosexual family, at least almost everyone. And most of us live our lives deeply embedded in heterosexual culture. Now most African-American kids grow up in an African-American household. Most Jewish kids grow up in a Jewish household. They are part of a minority you can easily demarcate. They're part of a minority that creates its own self-sustaining culture from birth on. Not true of gay people. We are spread randomly through the population in every family. And we live and breathe as heterosexuals, as included within heterosexual culture, because they don't realize yet. Unless we tell them, or unless it's so obvious they have to kick in a whole bunch of denial, which they are very talented at. So this fact that we're embedded already from our birth on, for such a long period of our most formative years, makes setting us apart in later years even more, I think, condescending and balkanizing and stigmatizing in a strange way. It is a benign form of stigmatization. And it entrenches the idea that we somehow need to be protected more than other people. My view, and this is where in some ways the libertarian right meets the liberationist left, is the right attitude is those drag queens at Stonewall who fought back who stood up for themselves, didn't seek law, sought to bash those cops back. What I loved about ACT UP was its fearlessness in declaring, there is nothing wrong with being gay, and gay is good. Gay is good. Gay is good. Why would something that is so good be something we should be so frightened of being persecuted for? Bring it on. Bring it on. I love debating the religious right. Why? Because I'm not afraid of those people. Why? Because I'm not some persecuted minority desperate and unable to defend myself. And the first thing that I defend myself with is the First Amendment, which is what I'm doing here tonight and which gay people have done for centuries. I need to conclude. The politics that I argued, in alternative to all these four things, has in the couple of decades since I first started making this argument come to pass. We have seen, and the argument was that the core argument is that the government, the government should stop treating us differently. The government should stop identifying us as different and stop discriminating against us. We are equal, and our government should treat us equally. And that means our relationships should be treated no differently in any way, shape, or form than a heterosexuals relationship that is identical in its commitment, in its fidelity, in its love, and its passion. I will never accept that somehow my love for my husband should be quarantined into something called a civil union or a civil partnership, or euphemized in such a way that is not the exact equivalent of the relationship of my sister and her husband. I am not going to be written out of my own family, and there is no reason why any gay person should ever accept anything but full equality under the law. Separate is not equal. We are our own families. We live in our own families. We are not something other than the family. The defense of the family means the defense of homosexuals. There is no difference. We should fight for no difference. And the service, the military service of soldiers who risk their lives and have died for this country should never be treated in any way differently than their heterosexual peers. They should always be treated and rewarded or punished on the basis of rules that apply to everyone equally. That can be done and it should be done. Segregation is wrong. It was wrong racially, it was wrong sexually, it is wrong with respect to sexual orientation. And civil unions and domestic partnerships and anything short of civil marriage is a form of segregation and a form of stigmatization which no self-respecting gay person should tolerate for a second. People will object that religion Is such a powerful thing. And that unreason should therefore be given a special privilege over reason and equality and truth. Well, if religion is not about truth, what is it about? If religion is not about the sincere seeking of truth, then what is it about? And the civil protections I'm talking about, the civil equality I'm talking about, simply the ability to be treated like everyone else is a civil thing, not a religious thing. It is a marriage license issued by a civil entity. It has nothing to do, in some respects, with religion. Atheists get married every day of the week by local clerks, by town clerks, by civil officials. And they never have anything to do with any religion at all. The idea that a religious group should be able to say who and who cannot be civilly married is absurd. And let me give you one simple example, the great inconsistency within the Catholic teaching. Is the Catholic Church campaigning to make civil divorce illegal? Is the existence of civil divorce an attack upon the family? Is it as an attack on marriage? Civil Divorce is absolutely forbidden within the Catholic Church. It affects far more people than gay people or than the situation of gay marriage. Why is there not a Defensive Marriage Act to prevent divorced people remarrying if there has to be a defence Marriage Act to prevent gay people marrying? Be consistent, and they're not. Be rational, and they're not. And treat us equally, and they're not. And lastly, yes, it is a civil question, this. It is about civil equality, and it's very simple. But what is it that I really, or we really, are fighting for in the gay rights movement? And it is that there should never be a gay rights movement in the future. I want to abolish the gay rights movement, I want to shut it down. I want to achieve civil equality so the distinction between homosexual and heterosexual in the political world is irrelevant. I want the day to come when there is no human rights campaign and no national gay and lesbian task force, no service members legal defense network, when I am not always described as a gay conservative, when I'm described as a conservative or whatever else I'm supposed to be I want the day when this is over I want the day when we're humans together when our differences are opportunities for self understanding and conversation when we can get past This distinction that has caused so much pain to so many people for so long and we can become citizens and human beings again. Thank you. What do you want me to do? Uh, so you take questions or anything?
0: Yeah. So what we're going to do is uh, take questions, uh, try to get people to speak into the mic, and I'm going to warn them. To well, I'm going to also,
2: okay, you, you do that. Yeah. So I'll just gonna make an as. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. So
0: any, any topic? Any, anything. All right. All right so uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sullivan, and on behalf of the University Committee on Public Lectures and the uh, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Center, which uh, still exists at Princeton University, <laughs> uh, we thank you for visiting Princeton. Um, Now, we have time for questions, um, and so because of the broadcast that's happening, eventually the rebroadcast of this, uh, we ask that you please wait for the microphone and please speak into the microphone so that for posterity we know what your question is. And I am informed that you will take questions on any subject, not just the subject of your lecture. Is that Yes. So if it comes up, um, the millions of subjects for which he is known, um, and I will give it over.
2: Thank you. Could I also ask a favor? Um, if, if I promise to end all this at 9.40, is that okay? Since we're 9.30 or 9.30? Yeah,
1: 9.30. Could,
2: yeah, because this place is very squeaky, if you want to leave before then, please leave now. But if you don't, can you stay and stay until 9.30? Because otherwise it gets really, the noise and the distractions get really demoralizing. I know, I know, I know, I know. At the Oxford Union, where I used to debate, there was a rule that once a person started speaking, no one could leave the chamber. Um, Just because it's really demoralizing for a speaker to watch people get up and go out. (laughs) (laughs) So either leave now or forever hold your peace. It's only 20 minutes. so. And I will take any question on um, any subject within the normal realms of propriety. Uh, yes, sir.
3: Uh, yeah, thanks for a great talk. Uh, I, I was wondering, what distinction do you make between the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church? Because you seem to, to find it okay that Boy Scouts can bar gay participation but not the Catholic Church.
2: Um, I guess because I believe that religious faith, in a way, is something more sacred than merely um, learning how to go camping or how to tie a knot and that religion and questions about the ultimate meaning of the universe do deserve special protection in this society in a way that other associations do not. Uh, And I know that's increasingly a controversial position, but it is one that I hold, and I think the First Amendment is very clear about that. Um, and, uh, And I think religion is special.
3: So, uh, my, I guess my question, first, I want to thank you for um, everything you've been saying on your blog recently about torture. I've uh, written about this. I'm a Catholic. Uh, I disagree w- with you on the subject of your lecture tonight, but I deeply appreciate everything you've said, uh, and I-, I hope you continue to speak. Thank you. Um,
2: I think that's a subject on which uh, Catholics of all varieties and Christians of all varieties should be um, far, far, far more passionately engaged in than we currently are. The fact that the United yeah. States government has tortured people um, in the most cruel and inhuman and undignified ways, and the people who did that are not only not prosecuted, but bragging about it on national television, uh, is is an extraordinary threat to the integrity of this country, and also
3: the defense of Western civilization. Uh, so my, my question is... Um... You've done sorry. You've done a good job of uh, you know, kind of going through the uh, natural law arguments, um, but I feel like your argument, though it was rational, still, uh, as you presented tonight, an argument from desire—that this is a desire deeply felt, you know, for gay men and women—and I wonder how you answer those who say, cite uh, these, you know, much more fringe phenomena of like people who say say they love something like the, you know, Golden Gate Bridge—and I don't mean to to demean anyone by, by saying that but people who say you know I deeply feel this this is my desire you know why why doesn't the argument you offered us tonight apply to them
2: um, simply because it is not desire; it is love um, and I think that's a different thing it's a deeper more profound thing and I think it is love for a human being who has a soul and is made in the image of God which I think is a different thing than an object um, or an animal or a hobby Um, and the reason I believe this you know I'm sometimes asked how can you be openly gay and be a Catholic and my answer is I'm openly gay because I'm a Catholic. I know that I am not and I don't mean to say that the magisterium of the Catholic Church agrees with me it does not I am in disagreement with the hierarchy and magisterium of the Catholic Church. But I also believe that it is the duty of every conscientious Catholic to speak from his heart what he believes sincerely to be true about himself and others, and that the core truth of our faith, in my view, is love. These three things remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these things is love. And to ask a whole group of human beings made in the image of God to live a life without love, without the intimacy, without the support, and without the care of another person uh, is an act of cruelty. And it is, it is a failure of compassion on the part of the church not to see that. I think many, many Catholics do see it. Um, And I think it it has gotten too muddled up with the notion of sexual acts as opposed to human love. And I have never made an argument that the sacrament of matrimony should be extended to homosexual persons. I would like to start a conversation within our faith tradition about what we do as a faith tradition with committed gay couples. Obviously, it seems to be receding, not coming close to that conversation. Um, but I do believe that it is, it is about love, not sex. And I also believe, by the way, and I, I know this sounds funny, but um, if you really want to kill off gay sex, marriage is the greatest way to do it. <laughs> I mean, and, and seriously, my husband will kill me for saying that. But, <laughs> Seriously, at some level, you see, when you actually come down to it, marriage, or the commitment of one human being to another for life, for good or bad, in sickness and in health, to be there for them when they've had an awful day, when their mother is sick, um, to be there for them when they were laid off, to be with somebody through the ups and downs of life and stay with them, and... Make a binding commitment in front of your family and friends that you will never, never let them go. Um, there's a beautiful song we played at our wedding, that it's by new order, um, And one of the lyrics is, "If Jesus came to take your hand, I won't let go." That's a beautiful thing. It is not intrinsically evil as the pope says it is. I believe that in my depth of my soul. I feel it in my life. Um, and I think that is a truly Catholic position in the end. It is bound up. Marriage, you see, is also not just about love, but it is, a, it is about a love that also becomes a profound friendship, which is a great virtue that the ancient and the Catholic Church has always taught is a great virtue. I wrote an essay about friendship um, in the last chapter of my book, Love Undetectable, um, and it's, it ends with Jesus. Uh, I, in my conscience, genuinely believe that this is what um, my faith is compelling me to do. And I utterly respect that your conscience says otherwise. Um... But I would also like to have a conversation reasonably about things like natural law and why these exceptions are made for others and not for us in the way that I did in the first part of this talk. And I think it is not fair, and I have gone to Notre Dame, I've gone to Boston College, I've written in Catholic magazines, and I'll tell you this, no one's yet really answered these questions. Instead, they have told me I am a bad Catholic. And... It's a very painful thing to love your church and to be told, really, you shouldn't be there. And for the Pope to say, especially with respect to gay priests who are celibate, that they're not allowed to be priests anymore, whatever they do, is, I think, actually an attack upon our faith, not a true representative of it.
4: Um, I wonder if you would meditate for a moment on the, the difference between the concept of marriage as a legal institution and as a cultural institution. And, and I oftentimes think, as I know we do not have in this country, that while we have a smattering of civil union legislation, civil union is not the legal equivalent of marriage. But if it were, universally, we would still have, at least as I interpret your talk tonight, we would still have a problem, and that is that there still is this cultural thing called marriage uh, which gay people say, I want, to, I want that. That is significant to me. And, and so I sometimes wonder whether if the state were to say, well, we're actually going to get out of the business of marriage. We're not going to issue marriage licenses anymore. We're going to issue civil union licenses to anybody that wants one. Do, does that somehow, would that uh, clear the deck, so to speak, or would we simply would have said, oh, now you've, you're peeing in the well and inviting me to drink from it? I'm sorry, all your arguments are suddenly
2: wiped away by the last metaphor. But, but, but it's a very serious question. I'm very grateful for you asking it. And um, this would be my response. Um, uh, first of all, it's never going to happen. Uh, so it's a kind of esoteric argument, it's an interesting argument, actually. I mean, but it isn't. And what's interesting in England, for example, and the pragmatic English are, this is typical of course, they have civil partnerships, but they all say we're getting married. That's how they get around it. The English are so good at this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> And that's why they irritate me actually a huge amount because they just avoid the subject and try and find a way to euphemize their way out of it. It's good manners. Um, But secondly, I actually believe in the cultural institution of marriage and the reasons for it. Um, I believe that it gives a status, it gives a social status uh, to people who are prepared to say in front of the world Um, I'm here for this other person forever And I also frankly uh, Even though I obviously wouldn't in any way legally prevent it um, I Don't believe in divorce as a a person I Don't Because I think marriage really is a solemn commitment forever. I think that's part of its undying definition Um, Now obviously we're all human And in the end, sometimes marriages are so bad and so toxic to people that they really should leave them. But I don't think they should enter them with that understanding or easily or casually. I also think that it is a good conservative, and this is why I'm, you know, why I still think I'm a conservative, even though none of the others do, um, is that the more someone else is there for you, to take care of you, the less the government will have to do so. And that therefore it helps limited government to sustain these marriages. They are part of what Burke would call the little platoons of our society. They are self-government and self-help. They're also economically important for people. I mean, every statistic you will find will show you that married couples live longer um, and uh, Uh, are healthier and happier um, because they have someone there for them. We all need that. Going home a light alone is is hard. Um, And I think this is especially and I also think that um, sex is a very powerful thing. As Rick James might have said. Uh, (laughs) Someone got the reference. Anyway uh, and Men, in particular, as we know, and I'm certainly not pretending otherwise about myself, sex is a very powerful drive. It's made me to do, made me do lots of stupid things, and, lo- and had lots of amazing experiences. Um, I think it's crazy to think that sex is an also astonishing mystery, um, and that's something that men, in particular. But we also know that if we Give into it too much, we've learned this over millennia, it can hurt us. Um, it can lead to um, the spread of viruses and diseases. It can lead to emotional isolation and uh, lack of self worth. It can lead to thinking of oneself purely as a sexual object. It can lead to compulsive sexual behavior. It's such a powerful force in human nature and especially for men, I think, um, that we need some kind of social institution to give status to commitment. And I think in a strange kind of way this is particularly true for gay men. Because we're all men. We don't even have women to give us hell when we come home having done something really stupid. We don't have women in our relationships to tell us, you need to settle down. Um, and now, of course, lesbians, on the other hand, and I'm, I'm generalizing massively here, okay? <laughs> but it's only when you generalize massively that you kind of get to interesting s- stuff. Um, you know, in some ways that you know, you, you know the joke. You know that the the joke is that what 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 does a, a lesbian bring on the the second date? And it's a U-Haul. What does the gay man bring on a second date? What second date? Thank you. <laughs> now that's often described about me, about gay men and lesbians. In fact, it's about men and women, for goodness sake. I don't think you could. I think if you look, if anybody with any understanding of of, of, of males and women looked at gay culture and lesbian culture, they would find anything to be surprised about. Now, it just so happens that in the last generation, once the restrictions and the criminalization and, and persecution of gay people was released, and when there was a general sexual liberation in the entire country, straight and gay in the 60s and 70s, when all that repression suddenly burst out, the gay men had freedom and no social institutions. And 300,000 of them died. And I have lived with a virus now for 16 years that has denied me the ability to have citizenship. That has terrified me. I have lost friends. Uh, I lost my closest friend. I watched him die in his mother's arms at the age of 31. I really believe, in, and I'll tell you this from my motivation, it was watching that happen. And I'm not blaming anybody for anything. I think these are very human impulses and very understandable impulses. But if we do not create the social institutions that can help gay men restrain a little, encourage a little, stability and fidelity and commitment. Um, then the fire next time could be even worse than the fire last time. I'm doing this for the people I lost. And I'm not saying it's... I'm trying to make a nuanced point here. And I don't think every gay man should get married, and I don't think having lots of sex with lots of people is the worst thing in the world. At all. Because I have. Um, I am saying that from a purely objective viewpoint, uh, if there are no social institutions to encourage commitment and, of one person to another, then collectively the consequences are psychologically and in the end physically terrible. Just as societies in which marriage collapses or in the inner city where some marriage has collapsed and the family has collapsed, the consequences for the people are really kind of bad. Even though every single one is made in the image of God and we should not condemn and I'm not, I'm just saying the data is clear and I want to build a firewall against this happening again and I think this is part of it as well as building the self-worth of people so that they understand that um, this is possible for them.
3: Uh, Thank you. Um, I wanted to return to the issue of having a dialogue with proponents of natural law. and I wanted to sort of press upon the extent to which that argument boils down to irrationality. Um, and I wanted to ask if you, um, if you think that there's basically a car of homophobia in its sort of strictest sense, like fear, um, underlying that argument. And what you think about the idea that it might just boil down to homophobia?
2: I, I, all I can tell you is that my experience over the last 20 years of making this argument in that context has been met in my own church with greater and greater and greater repression and greater and greater and greater hostility in the hierarchy. The more persuasive our cases, I think the more vicious the response has been. And I don't think that comes from a place of confidence. I think it does come from a place of fear. Um, and I think it also comes from a generation of gay men who in the church who have extraordinarily proportionate uh, numbers within the church um, who in many ways have run the church for centuries Uh, who cannot accept that the lives that they have lived need not have been lived that way and they will do anything deep in their psyches to prevent others having the happiness they denied themselves. And if I were to ask myself psychologically what's going on, I would say that's there. Um, People always laugh about this as if the Vatican was some, uh, it's one of the gayest institutions in the world. Do you think a straight person did the Sistine Chapel? Do you think a straight person orchestrated the high mass? Um, Gay people have been at the core and center of the church forever. Some of the greatest saints have been gay. Some of the greatest and worst popes have been gay. Um, When there was no place for gay people to go, where would you go? You would go to monasteries. You would seek out... Professions where your inability to marry would be hidden. It is no accident that so many of these men went into the church. It is also part of the fact, I think in evolutionary biology, that gay men are actually, because we often struggle deeply with our own identity, often do develop spirituality. That is quite profound. I'll tell you one little story. Cardinal Newman. Um... And I'm not talking here about whether people have sex or whether they don't have sex. I'm talking about whether they are gay or not, whether they love another person of the same gender, erotically and emotionally, and over the years, of course, deeply. Newman, we know, uh, one of the greatest Catholic intellects, and one of the great Catholic saints, um, and for an English Catholic like me, a particularly iconic figure. Um, lived with a man um, and was devoted to another man his entire life so devoted in fact that he mandated that he be buried alongside him in the same tomb and recently uh, and this is a true story maybe we should end on this Recently, of course, Cotton Newman is about to be uh, beatified, become a saint. And the current pope, if you're going to be a saint, um, they wanted not, him not to be in that grave. And they wanted to separate him. They wanted to dig up his remains so that this joint grave would no longer be in the public record. Um, because they also wanted to dispel any idea that this man, who was such a great pillar of the church, could ever have been homosexual. But something very amazing happened. They dug it up, and they found that the bones had so disintegrated that the two bodies were indistinguishable. And there was nothing left to separate And I think at some level that should teach the current Holy Father something and is a kind of beautiful rebuke to so much fear that has permeated uh, so much pain for so long. Thank you. At second, I'm sorry. At, at, at the Sam risk, wants to ask one last question. At, at the risk of issuing
0: a fake ending to this wonderful experience, uh, as chair of the committee, I did want to claim the right to ask one last. I'm really time. sorry. No, actually. no, no, no. It's just a benign been dying to ask, and it's a follow-up to the natural law question. Yeah. And I wanted to ask it from a secular perspective, from my own identity as a neuroscientist American. Um, <laughs> and.
2: I I think you should be protected from discrimination myself. Well,
0: we have our organization and we're going to keep it. Um, But when I hear discussion of natural law, and in the context of the previous question about uh, uh, perhaps prejudice and irrationality, when I look at natural law, I worry that natural law is a code phrase for uh, intuitions, maybe prejudices, but these uh, intuitive feelings that we have about how human relations ought to be. And my question is, uh, on your... In the Daily Dish, you write a lot about neuroscience, and I wonder whether as the foundations of behavior become understood in terms of neural circuitry, in terms of the things that make us who we are, do you think that's going to change our perception of what's normal, not normal? If we start understanding the foundations of behavior, is that a way of replacing, in my optimistic view, replacing natural law and turning the question into a different kind of question? And I wanted to hear what you had to say about that.
2: I, I, I do. Um, I do think it will open whole new worlds of understanding of what, human, what being human is. I'm fascinated, by, example, for example, of the neuroscience of faith. I, 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 I'm fascinated by the studies of the brains of people in deep meditation compared to people who are not. I'm fascinated by the possibility of understanding the homosexual mind and the heterosexual mind and see if there are differences in how subtle those things are and whether they develop. Over, obviously, they change over time. Um, you see, my view is that Aquinas, for example, was desperately seeking the truth about what human beings were in the 13th century, 14th century. It wasn't. What I what I feel in, in in these discussions of natural law is is exactly that is actually a, a resistance to to understanding nature. They resist it. Um, but I have to say also that if Darwin didn't do it, we we're 150 years after Darwin, and religious fundamentalism has never been stronger in this country or in the, around the world. Um, the great problem, I think, is that the more we know the truth about who we are in all our complexity, the more terrifying it will become for us to abandon the easy certainties and prejudices of the past. And that what we're really seeing in the world right now, and this goes far beyond the question of homosexuality, and um, it's the que- central question of my book, The Conservative Soul, um, is is I think that fundamentalism is an erotic response to uh, the truth, as it's being revealed by science, as it's been revealed by human experience, um, because it is sometimes, as Eliot put, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And uh, the reality that neuroscience is opening up, the possibility of seeing, as we found with Darwin, um, uh, you know, a revolution in thinking, which may, which I think is coming again, um, may instead of opening the human mind provoke a response the way that emancipation created Jim Crow. People can't handle it. Um, uh, we have to remember that um, Galileo. What happened to him? I mean. The people that stumble upon the truth are the people most dangerous, um, and they are the most and the reaction to them is sometimes the most ferocious that the Reformation in a way, which discovered the scriptures, which removed the authority of certain people to tell people what was in the Bible, the printing press, gave us witch hunts, witch trials. Burnings at the stake, the Inquisition—the most horrifying period of religious power and fundamentalist reaction—in which, you know, I once I I took my husband back to my hometown, and it's a beautiful little town in England called East Grinstead. Well, not that beautiful; parts of it are beautiful. It's Elizabethan, goes right back to the Middle Ages. There's Elizabethan thing, and I was showing him around, and um, we came to the oldest church at the top of the town, and. we saw these three big gravestones down there, and uh, we thought, well, these people must be really... I haven't been there in a while. These must be the lords and whatever. And it said, no, it said, here lie the remains of three martyrs for the Protestant faith who were burned at the stake 30 yards to the left, right next to the Starbucks. (laughs) You laugh, but people in Iran right now Um, right next to what they thought was Starbucks are being tortured because they're standing up for freedom against this kind of fundamentalism. You know, it's happening. And one major political party in this country, seized by fundamentalist religion, has also endorsed the executive's power to seize anybody in this country and torture them until they tell them whatever they want. And this country sat by and let it happen. Do not believe this stuff can't happen again do not believe that human beings, or human science, or human truth uh, will somehow march constantly forward without some horrifying reactions. Only, of course, in this particular moment, we have forces at work of fundamentalism, both in the Middle East and in this country, um, of all religions, whether it be the hideous fanaticism of the, uh, of the revolutionary Guards in Iran, or um, the Biblical fundamentalism in this country that is, that is defending. I'm not, uh, Mark Thiessen, uh, Vice President Cheney's speechwriter, goes on Catholic television and defends the use of torture as a good thing and Catholic thing to do.
4: Uh,
2: and there are settlers on the west bank of Judea and Samaria who believe that they are there forever because God has commanded this is their land. And if necessary, we must launch a war against other countries to protect that. And everybody has nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I, don't, think this is, I don't think people... I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being hysteric. If maybe it's excitable Andrew again, as the blogosphere constantly mocks me for being. And rightly so sometimes. But um, I think things are kind of scary right now. Uh, I, and I think that the more, uh, the more we get closer to the truth about human beings, the more terrified the reaction will be. Um, and it is, it is the fact that people in fundamentalist societies um, are seeing, because they can't push away anymore through the mass media, images, for example, of liberated women, that is fermenting a greater repression of women, uh, a, a, a regression um, in uh, the Middle East towards basically enslavement of women um, in the most hideous fashion. Um, it, it, to greater degrees, there, there are there are, no, there are very few countries out there that, that are not becoming more fundamentalist right now. Um, and this is this is a this is this is this is a flight from reason. It is an anti enlightenment and. I believe in the Enlightenment, because I think in the end, God has to be compatible with truth. That God is truth. So, I don't fear science in that way, but I absolutely understand those who have clung to certain doctrines as the meaning of their lives, for whom this truth is simply too scary to contemplate, and whose response is, is is a frightened and terrified and violent repression.
4: Thank you.